Good morning, how's everyone doing? Man, I am super excited for this morning. Um, it's always an interesting thing for me as the pastor of the church to take a Sunday off where I don't teach, but this is one of those rare Sundays. And so what's cool about this is we have one of our elders, Rex Rohrer, who's going to teach this morning in 1 Corinthians 13. And I'm so excited for it. Yeah, amen. Just so you guys know, I, I'm, I'm going to just tell you, this is one of those things. I'm very, very guarded in who we hand this pulpit it over to. This is not something I take lightly. It's not something that we do often. I will tell you, Rex is a guy with a proven character who has been a guy that's faithful to serve the Lord. I've known him for probably 15 years now, uh, since we've had, we were at Calvary Chapel Pasadena in California together, Pomona Valley. And when I told him that I was coming out to spy out the land in Texas at a men's study, you know, three and a half years ago, the first thing he said is, I wish you would have told me because I would go with you. I, I feel called to this. That was his first response when I told him I was maybe going to go look at Texas. And I couldn't believe it because I'm so blessed by Rex. I'm so excited. He ended up, him, Kim, Micah, the whole family came out here. They've been with us. He's, again, he's one of the elders here at the church. I just want to let you guys know it's going to be a blessing this morning. So why don't you guys welcome up Rex Rohr. Can you hear me? Hello? Hello? All right. Awesome. I was going to say, he's not that guarded. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> Apologize. Well, guys, I'm so, like pa Pastor James said, I'm so blessed to be here. Um, it's probably been said many times, right, that if the Lord can speak through a donkey, then I guess I qualify. Um, so blessed to be here. I was sharing with the folks as we prayed this morning that... You know, we kind of came out with Pastor James, and we uh, didn't know what we were doing. He didn't know what he was doing. Um, but we knew that we were led by the Spirit. We knew that we were called to come out and do this thing and do life together. And now here we are. You know, I, I think it's been three years, and we've gone from Pastor James' living room with one family, sometimes none, to I don't know how many of you are here, but we're blessed so, anyways, with that, as Pastor James said, we're, we've been talking a lot about love. As Pastor James has been finishing up, we use that word a lot, right? Love, love. I love this. I love that. I love the other thing. And it's a word that can be thrown out and I think minimalized. So I want to talk to you guys today about what God has called us to do as His people and how we are to love and so we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm old school. I use paper, guys. I don't have an uh, iPad, so bear with me. But whenever we jump into the middle of a chapter, we want to, get, want to give you some background. So a little bit of background about Corinth. You've probably heard this before. <clears throat> Corinth was known as the, the Vegas, the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was the capital uh, of the Roman province of Achaia, um, which is now southern Greece. Um, it was considered one of the top ten busiest cities in the Roman Empire. It was located on a narrow piece of land between the Adriatic Sea on one side and the, a uh, the Asian Sea on the other, and it had harbors on each side. And as you can imagine, uh, this would allow sailors, merchants, refugees, and travelers from all over the world to mix. So it was quite the melding pot. Think LA, think New York. Um, and by the time Paul arrives in 50 AD, or the early 50 ADs, business is booming. This is a thriving place in the ancient world, right? There's taverns, there's theaters, there's markets, there's temples. We could saw the temple of Aphrodite and bathhouses. And as you can imagine, all the things that come with this red light district, prostitution and debauchery were rampant. Now, on Paul's second missionary uh, journey, he established a church in Corinth. Um, while he was there, he teamed up with um, some other Jewish mi uh, missionaries, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, they both had the same trade, vocation. They were tent makers. 
And so, so Paul spent about a year and a half uh, teaching in the synagogues and um, just preaching the word of God, the giving, giving them the good news, so to speak, in, in that time. And um, after that first year, first year and a half there, uh, he left. He went, he traveled on to Ephesus. And while in Ephesus, this is approximately two to three years later, he starts to receive notes of what was going on in the church in Corinth. And this, this was quite concerning to Paul. Uh, what he was hearing was the struggles that the church was having with pagan practices, the abuse of the spiritual gifts. They were a very gifted church. They were excusing sexual morality within the church. There was even a gentleman that was having relations with his stepmom. Sin had crept into the church. Now, a little caveat, a little side note. One commentator says, it must be remembered that Corinth was one of the most wicked cities of the ancient times and that the church was surrounded by heathen customs and practices. Welcome to McKinney. <laughs> we can say that about any city, right, guys? Las Vegas gets a bad rap. I don't care the population of one city to the next. It could be small town USA. Sin is present because it's occupied by people. So, Paul writes this first letter around 56 AD to correct the church and to exhort them to live a life that glorifies God and that would represent him well. Let me just jump back to chapter 12, prior to 13. Paul goes on to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. He describes them, the words of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith or increased faith, the gifts of healing, the gift of miracles, prophecy, the discernment of spirits, different kinds of tongues, and the interpretation thereof, and why God gives those gifts to Christians. God gives the gifts to the people to manifest His Holy Spirit and to build up one another in faith. Spiritual gifts help build love and unity within the church as each person uses them for the good of one another. How are we doing? Are we using the gifts that God has given us to build up our brothers and sisters? Now remember, he's speaking to the church. He's not speaking to a non-believing world. This is for you and I. But some of the Christians in Corinth were coming to Paul, they, or they were asking, why do some people have certain gifts and some others? Like, I have this special gift, right? Some supernatural ability to speak in tongues, and, but others didn't. They began to compare their gifts to one another. You know, about that, that, that word comparison, right? I think President Theodore Roosevelt was quoted as saying, comparison is the thief of joy. Amen. Don't compare yourself to one another. God made us individually different from anybody else. That's amazing to me. Pride had settled in. The gifts were important, or became more important in this kind of a culture. It was a me, me, me culture there at the church. Look at me. But Paul's teaching later on in 12 shows them that this was off-based, and it was the wrong kind of thinking. He begins to say to them in 12 that he doesn't want them to be uninformed or ignorant and that every Christian is a spiritual one because we all have the Holy Spirit. So, with that, I love that chapter 13 branches this what are the gifts and why are they given to 14, which says how we're supposed to do this. But 13 gives us the core, the big idea of what that is. And that's love. 
So if you're at 13, say you're there. Let's pray real quick. Father, so thankful for this time, Lord. What a privilege it is to come before your people. I pray, Lord, that you have a word for each and every one of us, Lord, with whatever we're struggling with, whether that's health, our marriages, the things we deal and see in this world, Lord God, that you would just continue to weed it out of our lives. I pray as a body of believers, Lord, that we would not look upon each other with envy or comparison, Lord, but we would love each other for who we are, just as you do. So, Father, speak to us, Lord. Fill this place with your spirit, Lord God. Help us to be the men and women you've called us to be and help us to glorify you in all that we do, Lord. We love you. We pray for these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So I think, as we've discussed before, Pastor James has mentioned it, you know, chapters and verses were put in the Bible for our sake so that we can find different portions. And I personally believe that this chapter should have started with verse 12, or excuse me, with chapter 12, verse 31, where Paul goes on to say that an earnestly desire the best gifts and yet, I show you a more excellent way. Verse 1 of 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Let's take a look at that. Paul talks here about the supremacy of love. Of all the virtues, love is the most important. The Greek word for tongues there, as he says, when I speak in all tongues, is the word glossa, which simply means other languages. So if I could speak other languages, if I knew all languages, or even the gift of tongues, and he says, languages of men and angels, that, that could be angelic language, languages spoken between the angels and God or amongst themselves, and a language we would never know or could never know in this present time. He says, if I knew all these things, but I didn't have love. I'm just like a clanging cymbal or a loud gong. Imagine the, the noise that would drive you crazy. Fingernails on a chalkboard, so to speak. That's all we sound like if we have not love, guys. Then he goes on and speaks of the gifts. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries, all knowledge. If I had all knowledge, and though I have all faith, do we have all knowledge? Do we have all faith? No, but what if we did? The faith that could move mountains, but I have not love, Paul says, we're nothing. That faith that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 17, 20, that can move mounds. Paul's not discounting the gifts. The gifts, they're needed. But what he's simply saying is that in order to use them properly, our motive needs to be love. I'm going to hammer you with love today, guys. Okay, again, going back, we use that word. I, you know, I hear pastors say it all the time, but it's so true that we throw it around. I love pizza. I do. Extra cheese. I love my wife. I love my church family. But as we're going to see as we go through, God's going to tell us what true love really is. 
Verse 3, he says, And I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned as a sacrifice. But I have not love, it profits me nothing. The word there for bestow is the word somizo, which literally means to feed by putting a little bit of crumb of food on your mouth. Paul saying that if I sell all my belongings to feed the poor, but my motivation isn't love, if I gave up everything, I'm such a charitable guy. I'm going to give it all up for you guys. But I don't love you, and that's not my motivation. It profits me nothing. That, word, that, that type of sacrifice of giving up, right? of bestowing. That's sort of like the, 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 the direction Jesus gave to that young ruler in Matthew uh, 19. He says, go and sell all your stuff, everything that you own, and give the proceeds to the poor. Man, I'm so glad he followed. He didn't. We grasp and hold on to our things, guys, and they're just things. They're all going to burn. Love is the only motivation that God honors. Search within ourselves why we do the things that we do. This is a test for us. Verse 4. Now, Paul's going to describe what real, true, agape love is. But in order to understand what that is, the Greeks had many definitions for love. Several. Gosh, I, you know, for a while I thought there was only three. Then I thought, oh, maybe there's four. And as I studied this, I go, down. there's many. But the ones that, the major ones that, that the Greeks had defined here for love, we're going to just touch on them real quick. The first one would be eros. Eros love. Now this is the kind of love that was named after the Greek god of fertility and it represented the idea of sexual passion, desire, romantic love between a man and a woman. We get the word erotic from it. The next one would be phileia or phileo. And this is the Greek word to, to describe a deep, meaningful friendship that goes much deeper than just being acquaintances. This is the love that binds people together and holds them together through thick and thin like brothers. It's that brotherly love, right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Everywhere we go should be the city of brotherly love. Guys, I'll take it beyond that. It, we're going to hit that what it really should be, right? Then there's storge love. This is the Greek word to, to talk about and describe familial, familial love, right? The love we have for family, especially the bond and the relationship between parents and their children. And then we have agape love. This is the sacrificial love. A self-giving love. A love that's primarily concerned for the good of others and not ourselves. It's much more than a feeling. Gosh, that used to drive me crazy. I feel this thing. It's not a feeling, guys. It's a choice. And although feelings may be a part of this, right, this agape love is demonstrated through our actions. It's a love that gives and expects nothing in return. Sounds a lot like me. Absolutely not. It sounds a lot like Jesus. <laughs> yeah, for you guys, we're going to agree with that. I was going to say, you guys don't know me very well. <laughs> And now Paul, in verse 4 through 7, is going to tell us what that is and what that consists of, what it is, and what it isn't. Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Are we kind? Do we suffer long? Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely does not seek its own, is not provoked, 
thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And in verse 8 here, he sums it up, love never fails. Now, we're coming up on Valentine's Day, and maybe you thought, oh, Rex is going to do 1 Corinthians 13. It's going to be a, a Valentine's Day message. And... No, guys, this goes much deeper than that. This is the type of love that God calls us to love one another with. That in and of itself, in my own strength, I cannot do. I cannot love even my wife that way, my best friend, my closest companion, my road dog. I can't love her that way. I don't have the ability to. But only by the power of the Spirit of God am I able to love her that way. And I cannot boast in myself, but only in Him. That word agape in verse 4 can also be translated charity, and I love this. When we give to charities, guys, we donate some money. I'm going to write you a check, Jerry Lewis, if you guys remember Jerry Lewis and that big marathon, whatever he had going on, and we're writing checks, and do we expect Jerry to return that check to us? Was it a loan? No, we give, and we didn't expect anything in return. Jesus went to the cross. The word tells us, beaten beyond recognition to die a horrible death and he didn't deserve it. And he did it for you and I that we would be able to spend eternity with God. But you know what? He did it freely of his own will, of his obedience to the Father and he expects nothing from us in return. But you know what? There's a call. There's a call to action to that. We must trust in that. So he tells us what love does, right? It suffers long, it's patient, it's kind. That word to suffer means to endure, to not lose heart to persevere patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles and to be long-suffering, slow to anger, slow to punish. I'm tested with that. You know what I say? You know who else is tested with that daily? My bride. Thank you, Lord, that my bride is long-suffering because I'm sure I test her each and every day. Amen. <laughs> For those of you who are married, you have a good bride. You know what I'm saying. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Love is kind. Are we showing kindness, guys? Now he goes on to say what love doesn't do. Love doesn't envy. The Greek word is zaleo, that Greek word for envy, and it means to burn with zeal, to be heated, or to boil with envy or hatred or anger. You know what envy does? It causes us to hate. It causes us to mistreat people. Envy caused Cain to kill Abel. It caused Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. And envy put Jesus on the cross. Love does not parade itself. In the original language, that means to boast or brag. Love is not puffed up, not proud or conceited. Verse 5. Love does not behave rudely. It means it doesn't act improperly or indecently or dishonorably. How are we doing? Love does not seek its own. 
It's not looking out for its own benefit. It's not selfish. It's not self-centered. Paul conveys the same idea in Romans 12.10. He says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. Are we doing that? Is he specifically speaking about certain relationships? Is he talking about our wives, our parents? That's a general statement that we should treat all people this way. Love is not provoked. It doesn't respond in a negative way. I get cut off on the freeway, you know what? I'm going to be provoked. I watch the nightly news, I'm provoked. I look at the leaders in this nation, I'm provoked. Lord, help me. Lord, help us. Love thinks no evil. This literally means love does not store up any memory of any wrong it has received. It doesn't have a ledger that says, oh, so-and-so did this to me. Mark that down. My wife didn't clean the house today. Mark that down. That brother didn't invite me to his fellowship at his house. Mark him down. <laughs> Oh, wait till I have the next party. He ain't coming. No. <laughs> Love doesn't do that. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. That could also be translated evil or sin. But what does it do? It rejoices in the truth. That word for iniquity in the, in the Greek is adikeia, which means injustice of a judge unrighteousness of heart and life, deeds violating the law and justice and acts of unrighteousness. Love doesn't rejoice in those things, but it does rejoice in the truth. The word for truth in the original language is aletheia, which means the objective truth. Guys, we hear this all the time in this culture. What's true for me isn't true for you. Oh my gosh, that burns me up. That gets my goat. If it's true, it's true for everybody. That's the definition of truth. There's no truth for you and truth for me. Come on. I'm provoked. <laughs> this is a, in fact, it rejoices in that truth. It's a fact. It's certain. In John 8... Verse 31 and 32, Jesus, speaking to the Jews who had believed in him, said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples, indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. I need to be set free. We need to be set free. Verse 7, love bears all things. Now he's going back to what it does again, right? What it is, what it doesn't do, and now what it does. Love bears all things. Some things? All things. The Greek word for bears is stego, and that means to shield, to cover, to protect. It could also mean to conceal the errors or the faults of another. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another, another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How are we doing? Are we bearing the burdens of our brothers and sisters? Or is it when we get that phone call and you're like, oh my gosh, send that to voicemail. I'll talk to him later. You want to know what love is, guys? This is what love is. It's not a feeling. Love. 
Love believes all things. This means to think that it's true, to be persuaded, to credit, to place confidence in. Love hopes all things. That word is el piso, and it means to wait expectantly, hopefully, trusting. Are we waiting, hopefully, trustfully, for the Lord to come back for us? And in the meantime, doing what, call, what God has called us to do and to love in the way that he's called us to love? I hope so. Because as we hope on these things, we're going to endure because love endures all things. That word is hupameno, and it, it means to remain, to tarry behind, sorry, not to recede and not to flee. Are we running away? Are we fleeing at the first sign of adversity? I hope not. To preserve, to hold fast. Again, that's what that means. To hold fast in our faith under the trials, under trials, under tribulations. To not lose heart. Love. I love this. This is verse 8. This sums it up. Love never fails. And I love that because the Greek word for fails is ekpipto. And it means to fall out of, to fall down from, to fall off. How many times have you heard someone say, we used to, we used to be pretty involved in marriage ministry. And I cannot tell you how many times I would hear these excuses. Ah, oh, brother, man, I just fell out of love. I don't feel that way anymore. You can't fall out of love. It was never held up. It was never propped up. It can't fall. And I'll say, if you fell out of love, you never loved to begin with. We choose to do it, guys. It's not a feeling. It's not butterflies. It's an action word. And we need to take action as the church. The churches fail to love outside of the four walls. And because we haven't acted, we see a culture that is crumbling before us. A culture that denies the existence of the one true God who created everything, including themselves. Satan's a liar. He's a forfeit. He's an imposter. And everything that God has created that is good, he tries to mimic it and flip it. We know what love is. We're finding it. If you didn't, we're finding it out right now. But again, the enemy likes to use words and God's word flippantly. Continuing in verse 8. Paul now is going to talk about the permanence of love. What does that mean, Rex? We're going to find out. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they'll fail. Now he's going into those gifts again, right? Speaking of what he talked about in verse 12. Or excuse me, chapter 12. So whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge... It will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But then that which is perfect has come. Then that which is in part will be done away. Now, when I was going through this, man, I almost, I was like, I'm going to stop right there where love never fails, right? That's good enough for us. God's defined what love is. But these last five verses are so important 
to sum up what that love is. Now remember, he's speaking to the church in Corinth. Again, very spiritually gifted, haughty in their gifts, proud in their gifts, but failing to love. And Paul says here that he contrasts love, which is eternal and that will never fail, with the gifts, which are temporary. And they will fail. They'll end. They'll cease, as he says there. They'll vanish away. Verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. He says here that we know in part. We don't know fully. So no matter how much knowledge we gain, no matter how book smart we are, we will not know in full till the perfect, the perfect has come, which is spoken of there in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 8.2 says that if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. There's going to be a time, guys, and I believe that's when Jesus comes for his church, that our eyes will be opened and we will know these things. We know in part and we prophesy in part. Partially, not fully. Verse 10, But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. That word for perfect in the Greek is teleos, and it means brought to its end, finished, complete. Now, as I was going through this, and this never occurred to me, but as I was going through this studying and reading, and I came across some, some things here where some biblical scholars have tried to interpret this word for perfect or complete as the completed can biblical canon trying to prove, in their opinion, that the gifts ended in the apostolic age. Now, if this was the case, and the gifts are no longer available to the church, why hasn't knowledge ended? As he talks about here, prophesying and, and tongues. Why hasn't knowledge gone away? The gifts are still available to the church. Again, we don't put an emphasis on them. However, in context, and I believe most biblical scholars agree with this, that it can't be talking about the completion of the biblical canon, but it talks about the soon return of Jesus. The gifts in man's imperfection, those things will be done away when Jesus comes for his church. Philippians 1.6 says that being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us, in you, in me, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9-10 says, For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and all power. How are we doing, church? I hope this is a good word for you. I hope that we leave this place understanding that we need to love as God has called us to love. That we fully mean it. And I get, I, I get it. I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm sure. I'm almost positive that I'll leave here today and I'll, I'll fail in this. I know it 100%. I'm going to fail but we need to put it in practice. We need to have this at the forefront of our minds as we represent God as his children. I used to play sports as a kid. I wanted to be a professional athlete, but I was too short, and I made up, but I, I did make up for it by being slow. <laughs> um, and I remember going out, playing organized sports and wearing my jersey and I was more proud of what it said on the back than on the front, right? Roar. 
I lost my father at a young age too, so I wanted to represent him well. I wanted to make him proud. I hope we take that attitude as children of God, as his people, with his name written on us, and we make him proud. That way we would love the way he's called us to love. Verse 11. Paul's going to talk about the temporary nature of the gifts. And he's been, been hitting this as opposed to the permanence of love. And now he's going to say to them, guys, grow up. You need to mature. Get off the milk. Verse 11 says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, and I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just I, as I am also known. Boy, that one hit me. <laughs> that whole thing. There are times when I look at myself and I go, dude, you gotta grow up. Stop acting like a child. Man up, so to speak. Woman up, so to speak. The church in Corinth, they were acting like children. And Paul's saying, you know what? Those things that you boast about, those things that you take such pride in, they're going away. The life of the believer starts, guys, when we make that profession in who Jesus Christ is, and Christ is, we make that choice to follow him fully, wholly, the best that we can. We still miss the mark. But you know, it's not about us. It's about him. I had a brother once tell me, and it's so profound. It's so, such a simple saying, but so profound. He says, you know what, bro? God doesn't need you. What? doesn't need me something even better he wants you I hope that's the love that we have that our love is not provoked or used in a way that we get something because we need you I need something from you I hope that we love because we want to love We need to mature as believers. For in verse 12 it says that, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Paul's giving this description, right, of that current state of where he is in his present time to what is going to happen in the future. For now, we see in part Right? We see in a mirror dimly. So mirrors back then, they aren't the mirrors that we have now, right? They're, they were probably mostly made of bronze. So the image that you saw in these mirrors was not really a true image or depiction of who we, we are visually. So it was like looking dimly because we only could see somewhat of what we look like. But he says that... Uh, then, referring to when the perfect comes, we'll see face to face. We'll see everything fully. Now we only see partially, but then we'll see the whole picture. John 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 2 says that, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he, capital H, is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now we see partially, then the whole picture. He says there in 12, when, and when I shall know just, when I see that fully, I shall know just as I am also known. That was a tongue twister for me. And that was hard for me to understand. 
just as I am known, just as you are known. I've been with my wife for 26 years. And I'm still learning stuff about her each and every day. I don't know her fully. But God knows us fully. How well are we known? How well does God know us? Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Psalm 139, 1-4 says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue. Behold, but behold, O oh Lord, you knew it all together. God knows us so intimately. And even knowing us intimately, creating us in his image, he is outside of time and space. He knows the beginning from the end. He is the alpha and he is the omega. He's intimately acquainted with every aspect of who we are. That's how well he knows us. says there when the perfect comes we will have that same understanding I can't wait do we know all things no but when Jesus comes back for his church we'll have a clearer understanding does this mean the gifts aren't available as Paul is speaking here no the, the, the gifts are absolutely like I said they're available And looking at this, guys, we can only, only surmise that that perfect can be, again, the coming of Jesus for his church. Now we're going to finish up, guys, the last verse here in verse 13. And it shows here the permanence and priority of love over the other virtues mentioned here in 13. Now what are they? He says here, and now... Abide faith, hope, love. These three things are these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why is that? Why is love the greatest of the three of these three virtues he speaks of? Let's look. Well, one, faith. Faith is essential to the believer. It's the foundation of what we believe. It's our way of life, trusting. If God revealed himself, we wouldn't need faith, right? If Jesus came back from his church and we're face to face with him, we would no longer need faith. Done. He's here. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Once we see them, we would no longer need faith. Hope. Hope is essential as well to the believer. As we trust and wait on the Lord, Romans 8, 24 says, For we, we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? If I'm praying for a new job, if I'm praying for a certain thing, I hope that I get it. Once that comes to fruition, do I need to hope any longer? No, I don't. Faith and hope will be gone. We don't need it anymore when Jesus comes back. But love, love is eternal. Love is the earmark of the believer, guys. 
That is the stamp on us that says we belong to Him. Because for the believer, love is the very nature of God. John 13, 35 says that by this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have what? For one another. Do we have love for one another? I hope so. 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. So there you have it, guys. Are we loving? Ooh, getting late there. Sorry, guys. Hope. Faith. Go away, guys. When Jesus comes back for us, we no longer need it. But love, love we'll take into eternity because we'll still love our God, we'll still love Jesus, and he'll be loving us. And that's why love is the greatest of these. So guys, I implore you, I thank you for your time. I thank you for putting up for me, for my babbling. Love me, please. <laughs> but we can't do this thing, guys. We can't do this thing called life as the body of believers without being filled with the Holy Spirit. Loving in the way that God has called us to love. Love your brother and sister and take that attitude of love to a lost floundering world and if you're here and you're not a believer you're not a follower of Jesus Christ I implore you today is the day of salvation tomorrow is promised to no man and if you want to be a part of this family say a simple prayer with me Lord Jesus I know that I'm a sinner I need your forgiveness I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I pray that you cleanse me by the, your blood and give me a brand new heart. I accept you by faith as my personal Lord and Savior. Give me a thirst for your word, Lord God. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.